Okay, please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in the book of Luke. The book, the book of Luke. Chapter 19. The book of Luke, chapter 19. Verse 28. If you need a Bible, by the way, you can raise your hand. Some will come to you. A couple Bibles here in the front. Bibles, Bibles, Bibles. Up here. Right up here. All right, good. Not only want to hear God's word, but see God's word as well. Luke chapter 19. Verse 28. When he, Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the goat, the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. When they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was... Now, drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let's pray. Lord, this is a dramatic moment in your word. You're coming into Jerusalem. This happened 2,000 years ago. I pray that you would bring it alive to us today, Lord. We want to be there. We want to witness what those people witnessed. We want to feel, Lord, what they felt. And Lord, we believe that by your Holy Spirit, you can do that very thing. Bring us there this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we're going chapter by chapter through the book of Luke. Ever since chapter 9, we've been accompanying Jesus on his final journey to Jerusalem. Here in chapter 9, that journey ends. He arrives for the final time into Jerusalem. So much to learn from these verses this morning about his arrival. 
verse 29, we began there. It says that, and it came to pass, it says he was at a mountain called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Now, this is an interesting place, the Mount of Olives. Jesus will be spending his nights there. He will be arrested there. In the book of Acts chapter 1, it appears that this is where he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. We do know that in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back to earth, this is where he touches down, the Mount of Olives. And when he touches down, by the way, the mount's going to be split in half. A big valley is going to be formed, the Mount of Olives. It says there at the end of verse 29, he sent two of his disciples before him and he said, go into the village opposite you where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one ever sat. It's a donkey. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, again, this is a donkey, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. So here at Calvary Chapel, we try to read each chapter carefully. We don't want to miss anything, and there's something I don't want us to miss here. In the Gospel of John, there's a description of all this, but it's just one verse. It says, Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. That's it. (laughs) But in in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have all this description this detail, and just looks unimportant, really. Jesus says to two of his disciples, okay, you guys, go ahead. There'll be a donkey tied up in the village opposite here. Uh, take the donkey. If anyone asks you, hey, what's going on? Why are you taking my donkey? You tell them, well, the Lord needs it. And here in Luke and Mark, it adds, adds even extra detail. It, 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 sure enough, they're untying the donkey. The owners go, all right, what are you doing with my donkey? And they said exactly what Jesus told them to. Well, because the Lord needs it. There doesn't appear to be any disagreement. He just, they just take off with the donkey. So you know when you're reading the word of God, ask why. Please do yourself a gigantic gigantic favor. Ask why. Why, Lord? Why, God? Don't ask yourself. You'll never get the answer. Just get confused. God, why? You read the word of God to be drawn into prayer. He wants wants to be drawn into a, a communication with you. Why? And for crying out loud, why? Does Jesus not just tell his disciples to take the, uh, to, to go ask the owner first, you know? Has anyone ever wondered why? I mean, okay, why don't they just go to the owner first? Hey, 
There's this donkey. The Lord needs it. Can I, you mind if I take it? Doesn't do that. This bothered me, actually, for years. Why is this? Can you imagine 2,000 years later, Jesus coming into Boston, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him. Hey, right outside the city, you'll see this white van. <laughs> and, you know, just go to this van, hotwire the thing, and take it. If anyone asks, uh, you know, what you're doing, just tell them, hey, cool out, man. The Lord needs it. <laughs> oh, hey, no problem. Take the van. Good hotwire, man. I'm impressed. Why? Why does he do this? Donkeys are no different than a van. They needed the donkeys to get around. Well, a couple things. First, it's just a reminder to us. Again, he's, by, by including this extra detail, he's, he, the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to slow down. Try, reminder to us that Jesus is a prophet, but he's not only that. Yeah, he knows exactly where the donkey's going to be. It's like, oh, that's cool. He knows what the response is going to be when they untie the donkey. Wow, he's Jesus. He's what's up. He knows what's going to happen. But it's also a reminder that Jesus is the son of God. He's God. And why do I say that? Verse 30 says what? This extra detail. The donkey's never been sat on. You know, it's not a problem at all getting on a donkey that's never been sat on. If you're God. <laughs> if you're not God, the, thi you know, the thing's going to, you know, it's going to be like the Palestine rodeo. That thing is going to throw you. It's going to buck you. It's going to, you know, it's going to throw you off. Things never been ridden before. Man, I remember when I was just first courting Stephanie, my wife. We were up in north central Florida. We went to a farm. There's a big old horse there. I got up on that horse, and man, I barely tapped it with my heel, and that thing went, I just went flying off the horse, just smack on the ground. Stephanie's like, Wow, this is one impressive dude, <laughs> you know? Hey, guys, really, there's hope for you. you there's always comeback, okay? I'll, I'll tell you later what the comeback was. But uh, anyway, uh, I wonder what the disciples are thinking when Jesus got on this donkey, which no one had ever sat on. And they're thinking, mm, wow. You know, the thing is just perfectly calm. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. This is just a reminder of that. You know, we need that. We need that as we're reading the word of God. Wives, by the way, what he did with this donkey, he can do with your husbands. 
If you don't believe me, go ask my wife. Uh, he can tame donkeys. He really can. Ones that have never been sat on. So you can just sit on them and, you know, not really. But uh, uh, anyway, so why all the detail about this donkey? Well, yeah, it's a wonderful demonstration about who Jesus is. He's the son of God. But there's something else going on with all this detail. Again, three gospels. It took the time to just add all this, this, this detail, this seemingly unimportant detail. I'm convinced that Jesus is dealing with the owners of this donkey. To, to, see, to us, it seems crazy because, you know, Jesus, he, he, we've been talking about this in the past week. He's marching to the cross. All of human history, past present and future, is looking on. This is the pivotal moment in the history of the world. All the power of hell is raging against him at this time. I mean, you think you have tough days. I mean, Jesus, he's a few days before the cross. In a few days, the full judgment of Almighty God for all the sins, every sin of your life and every other life that has ever lived is going to be placed on him, and he knows it. But what have we seen at the end of chapter 18? A blind beggar, a blind beggar cries out for healing. It says what? Jesus stood still. At the beginning of this chapter, a tax collector, the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, Climbs up to a tree to, to see Jesus. Jesus calls him down and, and spends the better part of the day. He's going to be dead in a few days, and he knows it. But he spends the better part of the day explaining to this man, Zacchaeus, who he is. It's all proceeding from a heart of love. So often... Yeah, he's dying for the sin of the world, but we see Jesus' ministry to the very end, focusing on the one to the very end, thief on the cross. Remember me, Lord, when you enter your kingdom, surely I'll say to you, today you will see me in paradise. To the very end, the ministry is to one. Oh, that we would get that. The one, the one right next to us or in front of us. So amazingly, he makes this dramatic entry into the Jerusalem. We, focus, we see him focusing on just one or two here. Who? The owners of this donkey. The owners of this donkey? You gotta be kidding me. Yes, he's always focusing on people. They ask Jesus, What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor. Oh, how we need a reminder of that. So why doesn't he just ask the owners if he can use the donkey? I mean, really. Pause, please, brothers, sisters. Ask why. It's what God wants you to do. He wants you to draw you in. Listen. I'm convinced it's this. It's this very simple point. In order to teach them, it's his donkey. That is his donkey. 
It's God's donkey. It's the Lord's donkey. It's the Lord's white van. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. That's why Jesus, he says in chapter 14 of the same book, I put it on the screen a number of times, it says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that, when he says that again, we've gone through this a number of times, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we start handing over everything to God. It means there's a transaction in our heart. Something has taken place in our heart where we just let go and recognize none of what I have is mine anymore. So coming uh, to Jesus is simply acknowledging what's already true. Lord, everything I have is yours, so I'm letting go. Verse 33, the owners see Jesus' disciples untying the donkey. They ask, what are you loosing? Why are you loosing my donkey? Verse 34, the disciples respond, because the Lord has need of him. Apparently, there's no pushback here, no resistance. See, by this time, Jesus' reputation had preceded him. People had already knew about him. They'd gone forth ahead. There's this... This prophet, he's th- this man, this, this Messiah is entering the city. And he's been healing blind people. He just rose someone from the dead. And so these guys, apparently, they, they know about him, and they knew the Lord. So why so much space dedicated to what looks on the surface, something such imp- unimportant detail? Why couldn't you just have been like John Luke and just gone right to the point? Because of this, he wants to remind you that the earth is his and the fullness thereof. The earth is his and everything in it. And let me tell you, there will be times where he just shows up in your life and he says, this thing, I want it. This loved one in your life, I want her. I want him. This close friend that you've been so close to, I want them now. I have need of them. I have need to take them away. That house, that roommate, that living situation, I'm removing it from you. That job you're in, I'm taking it away. That big old chunk of money in your bank account, here's what I need it for. But Lord, I needed it for a 62-inch flat-screen TV. Sorry. I have need of it. This is what you're going to use it for. And you have to understand when he does that, when he takes away something that is near and dear to your heart, listen, most of the time, you're not going to get it. These guys, I'm sure, these owners of this donkey, this may, this seems arbitrary, right? They didn't know. It seems unfair. Why is he going to use a donkey? Why does he need that? Jesus didn't need a donkey. He was the walking maniac. I mean, he walked thousands of miles all around Israel. Only time I'm, I'm aware of, prior to Revelation, 
where he is seen riding an animal. They didn't get it. They would someday. And wow, will they be like, all right, that was my donkey, you know. And, and, and so uh, you may not know why God takes this or that or that person or this thing from your life. He may well very reveal it to you in due time, but mostly you got to settle in your heart, brothers and sisters. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let's get back to verse 35. They brought the donkey to Jesus, verse 35. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, or rather, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, meaning you, you shouldn't be letting people do this. You shouldn't be taking worship from people. They're praising you. They're, they're, they're act, you know, you're, you're acting like you're the son of God or something. You need to stop this. And what does he say? Wonderful verse. It says, verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So you have this great multitude of people, thousands of people, verse 37 says they're rejoicing, they're praising God with a loud voice. And then again, the religious people saying, why are, you, why are you letting this happen? Stop this. And he's saying, if I stopped it, the rocks would cry out. Now, remember, prior to this time, prior to his arrival in Jerusalem, what happened any time, or m many times at least, Jesus performed some kind of miracle or there was any kind of discussion about him being the Son of God? What happened? He told people, you need to keep this to yourself. Don't tell anyone. Actually said, do not tell anyone. He instructed them. So in Luke chapter 5, he healed a man of leprosy. Tell some don't tell anyone. Listen, you need to keep this to yourself. What does the guy do? Goes out and tells everyone about it. And, and, and then Luke chapter 8, he, uh, Jairus' uh, daughter dies. Jesus raises her from the dead. What does he do? He tells her parents, Look, you don't tell anybody. But also in Matthew 14, he asks his disciples, he, he says, who do people think I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, a prophet or Jeremiah or Elijah. But who do you say that I am? Peter says, what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does he tell them? He says he strictly warned them not to tell anybody. Now, that all, this is confusing. I, this is a question 
I've had many times in the past, and I, I, I'm asked, why? <laughs> why does Jesus do that? Well, there's a short answer and a, a, there's a short, simple answer and a long, complicated one. The short answer is Jesus didn't want a circus, particularly with his healing ministry. He wanted people to listen to the word of God. So important. Every Sunday morning and during the week when we, when we gather and, and, and that we're just on our own in our own devotion time, that we're hearing and listening and reading the word of God. He didn't want a distraction from that. But there's a more complicated reason as well that he does a 180. In fact, you'll see, yes, he, he, you know, he does this 180. Um, it, he, he becomes really deliberate. And, and I'll, I'll get to this more complicated, longer reason in a second. But he becomes real deliberate. He carefully orchestrates everything now. And, and so that everyone, no one will be left with any doubt that he is the Messiah and that he is the son of the living God. In fact, just getting, getting the donkey was something that he ordered because he wanted people to know. This verse here in Zechariah, the Old Testament uh, prophet Zechariah had prophesied. He said, you'll know the Messiah is with you when you see him coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus knew that. And, and the time now is for to bring out everything in the open. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, not only uh, does he get a donkey, but he gets a donkey that's never been ridden before. The book of John says it's a young donkey. The book of Matthew adds a little extra detail saying that in addition to the donkey he was on, there was another donkey right next to him who was basically a baby donkey walking alongside. And so even in that little detail, you're like, what's that about? This little baby donkey, well, what's this about? Well, for those of you who like to really dig into the word of God, and I hope you do, and I hope to convince you that you should, there is an obscure verse in the Old Testament which says this, Exodus 34, 20. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So the firstborn of, uh, of every ox and every lamb had to be brought to the temple and dedicated to God. But this verse says, but the firstborn of a donkey, because I don't want you killing donkeys on my altar. Redeem it with a lamb. Jesus is carefully putting everything together to make sure everybody knows he's the Messiah. He's the lamb of God. He's bringing in this donkey that, you know, you need to, He's basically bring it to the altar of sacrifice, which is the cross. But a donkey 
is never sacrificed on the altar. But the lamb is, and who is the lamb? Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Bible says. And so in verse 36, it says that the disciples are spreading their clothes on the road. That is a reference to an Old Testament practice of doing that very thing. Second King chapter 9, the people of Israel uh, anointing their, uh, their new king and they're throwing their, uh, their, their clothes in, in, so that you know, he goes over uh, the clothes. That's something that was done when they anointed uh, a new king. But most of all, when the multitude are crying out in verse 38, they're crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 18. It's a messianic psalm, meaning that's a, a song, actually, they would sing in their approach to Jerusalem, and it's basically a cry of their heart. They're crying on, in their heart. God, send your son, send Messiah, please, now. The book of Matthew adds the word Hosanna, which means save now. Save now, God. Bring us the Messiah. And, and when they're singing it and the religious people are going, hey, get your people to shut up. He's like, man, if I tell them to shut up, the rocks will cry out. And there's just this real sense, wow. Jesus is really made a dramatic change here. Uh, he's done a 180. Before he was telling no one to say anything. Now he's, he's you know, he's basically make, putting everything together with just this meticulous detail, making sure everyone knows he's the Christ, the son of the living God. First explanation, again, before, uh, that he didn't, he told people to, keep things secret was, didn't want a circus, wanted them to hear the word of God. But there's a, another, it's, a, it's a, a longer explanation. It's a more complicated one. Now, if you want the complicated version, come two Sundays from now in the evening, it so happens that we're in Daniel chapter 9. And it goes into this long, complicated reason of why on this day, this particular day, as opposed to every other day of his ministry, he decides to go public with this thing. I'm going to give you the real simple version of that long, complicated explanation. And it's this. I'm just going to put up, I'm going to put up uh, this this verse from the book of Daniel, written 500 years before Jesus came into Jerusalem. This is the book of Daniel prophesying, predicting to the very day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and be publicly recognized as Messiah. It says this, and I'll... I'll summarize. I'll explain what this means. It says this. Know therefore and understand from the, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So at that time, when, this, when Daniel was alive, Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. Burned to the ground. Everything. And so it says, 
from the going forth of the command to restore, to rebuild the city until Messiah the Prince, speaking of Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now let me try to make this really simple for you. That word week is a, what's called a Hebraism. That means a Hebrew expression A week was a period of seven years. In fact, in some translations, it will just say 70 periods of seven years. So follow me now. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is what? It's 69 It's 69. 69 seven-year periods is what it is. So if you multiply 69 70-year periods, you get, wow, I I will be very impressed. Someone actually knows this here. (laughs) You get, I, I think it's, 177,000, something like 340 days. You can actually put all the math together. Now, when the order was given to rebuild Jerusalem, again, it had been totally destroyed by the king of Babylon, we know that date. In other words, even secular historians know the date. It was March 14. 445 B.C. We know the date. March 14, 445 B.C. If you add 177,000, I think it's like 346 days, to March 14, 445 B.C., you get April 6, 32 A.D. Now, we have actually a whole book in the bookstore. I thought I had brought it up. I guess I didn't. It's called this Daniel's 70-week period. Uh, and this goes into this in great detail. And, and, and I got to tell you, I am naturally a skeptic. And when I hear this kind of stuff, I, oh, come on. Let me tell you, I have looked at this from every single angle. This prophecy, it's considered by many just far and above the most stunning prophetic prediction in the entire Bible. Sure, you can bring it up. So Kenny wants me doing stuff like this. Kenny, the the owner of the books, uh, the the owner. He doesn't own it. God owns it. But uh, (laughs) Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. It explains the whole thing. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It explains this whole thing. But, but, but again, uh, look, at, look at verse 41 and 42 here in Luke chapter 19. It says, as they drew near, it says, Jesus saw the city and wept over it. It says, and then he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, this was their day. The things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And he's weeping. He's weeping. Because these, these people, are, he knows they are going to reject him. 
And, and so it's just this amazing thing that uh, on this day, his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus knows Daniel chapter 9. Actually, he gave Daniel Daniel chapter 9. He knows that this is the specific day. And, he's, and, and he, so he's orchestrating everything. And he's doing this for our benefit 2,000 years later. So we read this and we go, wow. This book is from God. And I challenge you to get into the word yourself, read this book, challenge it any way you want. Now, in that same chapter of Daniel, it also predicts that Jesus will then be crucified, cut off. And then after that, the city would be destroyed completely, flattened a second time. We'll get into that next week. But for now, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, he is, he is letting everyone know beyond a shadow of doubt, I am the son of the living God, and I've come here for you. And again, who is he? He's the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the king. Jesus was a king. In John chapter 18, Pilate, the Roman governor, Jesus is on trial. And it says that Pilate therefore said to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus, it says, Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Jesus was a king. Jesus is a king. In Revelation chapter 19, it says that, and he has, uh, this is Jesus on his return to earth. It says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is telling them who he is. He's not just a prophet. He's just not, not just a nice guy. He's not just a teacher of good things. He's a king. Now, lastly, I just want to put up Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is also a prediction of, of the Messiah and a description of who Jesus is. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now, I want to close with this. There was a multitude with him at this point, a multitude. Thousands of people were following him. Within a few days, most of that multitude had deserted him. And I want to talk about that this morning. And I really, wanna, I, I really want us to just embrace in our hearts and, 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 and figure out why. Why is it that there's all these people, it says they're rejoicing and they are uh, with a loud voice praising God. Most of them fell away. Why? I'll tell you why. They were following Jesus for the wrong reason. At this time, the Jewish people, they were tired of Roman rule. The Romans ruled over them. They ruled over them with an iron fist. And it was just brutal. They were getting ripped off. 
They were, they, they, all their money was being transferred, or so much of their money was just being transferred to the Roman government. The, the Romans just crucifixion, actually, very common mode of execution at the time. It wasn't just Jesus. There was hundreds of people crucified. Brutal regime. They were tired of it. They, they, the Romans were ripping them off. And their idea of who Jesus was, the Messiah, was someone who was going to come in and just end all this because they were tired of it. Now, the Bible does say that Jesus is going to end all that kind of oppression when he comes a second time, but the first time he needed to die for the sins of the world. He needed, as it says there in Luke, he needed to bring peace between Israel and God and between you and me and God. And that was only going to happen through the cross by putting our sins on the cross and having him die for us and then raised from the dead. And then when they found out, they didn't get what they wanted. And he was arrested by the Romans and taken away by them. They're like, yeah. Let me tell you, too often in a group, a room like this, there will be worship music, stirs up our hearts, stirs up people's hearts. There'll be someone speaking, and it, the people get excited about God, about Jesus, and about things like that. And, and uh, the pastor will say, hey, you know, if anyone just wants to follow Jesus, come up and, and uh, come up and just receive him into your life. And people come up. Because they're tired of their life. They're tired of the depression. They're tired of just, they're in financial circumstances which are about to bury them. Their health has failed. The health of someone close to them has failed. They're in a relationship that is being destroyed. They're feeling overwhelmed. And someone tells them, come on up and receive Jesus in your life. And this kind of stuff, Jesus will make it go away. That's never, ever, ever the reason to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus for one reason. He's the king. And the Bible says that the earth is his and the fullness thereof. And just like with that donkey, he has the right to your life. That's why you give yourself to Jesus. And the only reason. And the Bible says that when a man's or a woman passes from a life which is really on its way to eternity apart from God, to torment, to hell, if they pass from death to life, it's, it's, it's because they have been saved because they've said, Lord, you're right. My life is yours. Not because, Lord, you're going to take away all my problems. It's you're the king. You deserve it. I'm going to you. I'm giving it all up. Now, will God give joy? Will he give comfort? Will he restore relationships? Will he materially prosper? Yeah, he will. The whole record of the Bible says he will. But never is that the reason to enter into a relationship with the living God. The reason to enter into a relationship with the living God is because you have sinned. You have rebelled against God. You've been living as an enemy of God. And you just put all that down and saying, I've been the enemy of the king. 
I'm going to the, I'm giving up and I'm going to the king because he's offering me the free gift of salvation. If the worship team could just come up and if you've been asked to prayer, come up. We're actually going to have communion now. And the Bible says that uh, communion is the sharing of the cup and the bread is something that Jesus gave not too long after Luke 19. He gave to people who are children of God, who have said in their hearts, man, I've been sitting on the throne of my own life. I'm going to get off and allow the king to come in. The Bible says if you believe Jesus, that he's king, and you receive the king into your heart, God gives you the right to become a child of God. He gave communion. He started communion. He started this whole thing this whole thing of taking the cup and, and, and eating the bread as a blessing to children of God. If you've never become a children, child of God, if you've never said, okay, king, come and sit on the throne of my heart, while the worship team, when they start up now, just come on up and I'll be right here or some of the other folks and we'll pray for you because it's a prayer of faith that we just ask the king into our lives. The Bible says we're transferred from death into life. Or if there's anything else in the message today that um, you'd just like to pray about, you know, we shouldn't be going to the communion table burdened really about anything. Maybe the Lord has asked you to take something away and you're like, I don't want to part with that. Or maybe he already did, and you're distraught, or you're not knowing what to do with it. Come up. We'll pray for you as the worship team begins. And then in your time, in your leisure time, just as the worship team is playing, we have tables in the back with cups and with the bread. Just take them, come back to your seat, and we will have communion. Lord, we do remember. We remember this morning... We thank you, Lord, for the blood that was poured out for us. We give over our lives to you now, Lord, because you're the king. You're the king on the cross. You're the resurrected king. You're the king who is, in spite of us not deserving it at all, you've invited us to join you. You've come into our hearts. We thank you for that. I pray, Lord, as we just go out today, we ask for the grace to keep everything in our lives, Lord, in an open hand, not clenching our fists on a donkey, on a card, on a relationship, on a job, anything. And Lord, we say to a man, to a woman, the earth, is, the earth is yours in the fullness thereof. The earth is yours and everything in it. And Lord, we praise you because you give, you, you take away, but you give so much more back. We thank you for that. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.